Welcome to another episode of Sweet Valley Online, where evil triplets come together to snark Sweet Valley twins and explore the darkness that lurks just beneath the surface of Sweet Valley. We recap three Sweet Valley Twins books each month. You can find all our recaps and previous podcast episodes at sweetvalley.online. We are also on Facebook at facebook.com slash sweetvalleyonline and on Tumblr at sweetvalleyonline.tumblr.com. Our music is provided by Stuart Taylor of Legacy Breakfast. You can contact him at taylorstuart602 at gmail.com if you want to commission your own music. All of this information will be in the show notes. Before we get into the episode, we want to announce a new project. In 2018, we'll expand our recap empire and launch Nostalgic Bookshelf, which will be a hub for all sorts of nostalgic recaps, from Sweet Valley to Stony Brook, point horror to horses, movies to games, and more. We're making a detailed announcement on 1st December, so keep an eye on our social media accounts and websites for more details. I'm Wing, I love babysitting, and I reveled in Jessica's discomfort this month. I'm Dove, and I am morally opposed to the monarchy. I'm Raven, and while I enjoy camping, I don't enjoy reading about camping. This month, we read number 29, Jessica and the Brat Attack, number 30, Princess Elizabeth, and Super Edition number 3, The Big Camp Secret. In Jessica and the Brat Attack, Jessica is excited about the school fair until she's assigned to the water balloon booth and immediately has to find a way out of it. And then, success! She steals a babysitting job from Elizabeth, sticking Elizabeth with the water balloon booth. And then, disaster. Elizabeth has a great deal of fun in the booth, and the kids Jessica's babysitting for are terrible. Kid roll call. Dennis and Susan, the younger ones who team up to torment Jessica, and Gretchen and Peter, the older ones who are supposed to be gone all day. Of course, they turn up, and Jessica suddenly babysitting for four rambunctious kids. In a house that has a beautiful room that is off-limits to all the children so it doesn't get destroyed, and into which they promptly sneak into. Of course, Elizabeth comes to save the day, and Jessica then takes all the credit for it. Elizabeth does refuse to help for a long time, which was a nice change, but then she felt guilty and worried and ran off to be her spineless self. Their plan is actually kind of cute, though. One of them is with the kids, says that she can beat the kids to another location. The kids race off to get there, and oh, look, their babysitter's already standing there. This goes back and forth for a while, and to the kids, it's basically magic. It was very cute, and it made me grin. The kids love this twin magic, and after a while, Elizabeth can leave. Jessica has the kids clean up all the messes they made, and by the time the parents come home, everything is wonderful, and Jessica is their new favorite babysitter, because they are idiots. Well, first things first, we've got to address the fact that surely it was Mr. Nydick who was like, put the girls in T-shirts and throw water at them. <laughs> Is that how Mr. Nydick sounds in your head? It's like Gollum. Oh, my precious girls. Kind of like a pervy goat. <laughs> the whole thing about the um, the stalls and everyone had to pull the name out of a hat and be in, in a particular stall. Isn't that just like press-ganging people into doing stuff that they don't want to do? Surely, 
they should be getting volunteers to be in the stalls and come up with the suggestions themselves. Exactly. I mean, when we used to have the summer fair at my primary school, my secondary school didn't do anything like that. You always used to sign up for the stall you wanted and nobody ever wanted white elephant. But the kids were always like proper fisticuffs over who got to have anything to do with water or liquid because one year we had I don't know how to describe it. The fire department showed up and filled sort of like a big plastic pool with foam. Oh, my God, there were proper fisticuffs over who got to take money for that. So what happened with the foam, though? What did the kids have to do? What was the... It's like the fire department turned up and went, you know, filled up this thing with foam. And what did the people at the fair get out of it? They, they, they have to pay money to look at a big thing of foam? No, we got to be in the foam. Oh, so it was basically a massive foam party? Yeah, yeah. It was basically like a kid's paddling pool, only the height of let's say a nine-year-old and you got to stand in there and um they would fill it up and then you would try to kill each other because 11 year olds phone parties for adults i suspect you try and do something else with with your partners but 11 year olds murder that's that's what you aimed for and then you just kept punching each other until all the phone disappeared then you had to fuck off and the next batch of 11 year olds went in there to kill each other it was fucking brilliant it was like the hunger games in foam yeah yeah basically um, that was literally what I was about to say. Yeah. One kid was allergic. We found that fucking hysterical. <laughs> the kid's parents demand the money back when the kid just came out looking like he was covered in bee stings. <laughs> <laughs> massive swollen face. Something has gone wrong. Yeah, nobody cared. Like, I think the kid got taken off to A&E and we were just like, ah, sucks to be that dickhead. Yeah, to be fair, when we had school fates and stuff like that, we, we just, we could put our names down for whatever store we wanted. We didn't have a prescribed list of stalls. I mean, the white elephant thing that you mentioned, the bric-a-brac stall or wherever it was, if nobody put the name down, then the, the teachers might organise something like that if things were expe- expected. And they'd man that. But we'd be there, like, doing the splat the rat and the, you know, the tombola and the lucky dip and the, uh, the moving the, the hoop around the bendy metal thing. Sounds like another Nidex, uh, Nidex special there. Um, but those were all driven by the kids rather than, right then, someone is going to be in the wet t-shirt booth and they're going to get drenched and possibly drown. It will be you and you will like it and not complain. You know, there was nothing like that. So that was a bit surprising for me. Like I said, Nidex, I think Nidex explains it all. I never had anything like this at school, or I don't remember it. I did have some things like this at church parties, and it was always run by the adults, so the kids could just go have fun at the booths. So it was a little bit weird for me, too. The other thing I found weird, and I I do get what they're actually talking about, but as we lead into the water balloon throw, we also hear about the softball throw and the bottle toss. And so when Jessica's freaking out because the water balloon throw booth means that they're going to throw water balloons at her, all I can picture is that they're going to throw softballs at Ellen and bottles at Lila because it all makes wonderful sense. That's amazing. As you explained it, I figured out where you were going with this. I'm like, I fucking love this school. Yeah, that's great. It's like, where are you going next? We're going to the brick toss. <laughs> You'll stand in the batting cage and we'll throw bricks at you until somebody loses an eye. <laughs> anyway, aside from the actual fair itself, what about the kids and the the, the babysitting and the, the whole setup for that? Any thoughts? So it's a little weird to me because originally the babysitting job is Amy's. This is a regular family that she babysits for. But 
she has double booked herself because she's an idiot and has both the fair and the job at the same time. So she passes it on to Elizabeth, who did the flyers and the signs for the fair, but is not having to man a booth for that reason. And of course, we hear that Jessica steals that job from Elizabeth because she doesn't want to be in the water balloon booth. What threw me about all of this is that at no point does the parent ask to meet these new babysitters. Not even when the babysitter, her current babysitter recommended, is suddenly unavailable and some second stranger who is not even connected to her regular babysitter is going to be there. It's just, it ties back into the dog walking situation where adults who should be more responsible are doing nothing and are trusting their pets to strangers. But now it's someone trusting their kids to strangers. And it's just, the whole setup is clearly just to tell this story. But it's an illogical setup, and I hate it. No, the parents obviously can't miss their monthly key party, can they? <laughs> They've got to get out there and throw those keys in the bowl. Uh, the key party that's also a phone party, clearly. <laughs> the thing with that, I mean, I, I, I appreciate that. But, I mean, I sort of give it a little pass because I don't know about you. When I was babysat, I didn't do any babysitting as when I was a young, a young, a, a youngster. But I was babysat, and sometimes the babysitter could take a friend with them babysitting to like do homework and stuff like that. So I can imagine a time when at least Elizabeth might have been round. But having said that, then she would have known more about the kids then, I guess. And they mentioned that, yeah, so scratch that. So, well, yeah, while I gave it a pass already, having thought about it, no, it does not get a pass. Yeah, well, I babysat, and... I only babysat for one family and the only reason I did it was my friend had an autistic sister who went to an autism group with the child that required babysitting and I was recommended by my best friend but my first babysitting job was with the best friend so that the mother could get used to us and the child in question but I was recommended on the basis that having grown up with my friend because this was very strong autism this was a complete inability to sort of like communicate so that's how I got the job but on the first day yeah we were both there and for the first hour the mother actually stayed to see how it was going so even back then I mean possibly that's a very specific and special case even back then parents cared more so I guess it's just the A plus parenting epidemic that is so prevalent in Sweet Valley that's that's justified this. I think it must be because I babysit a lot starting from a very young age younger than uh, Jessica and Elizabeth are here but by the time I was their age and just a little bit older I babysat for quite a few families that we didn't know personally but I would always meet with the parents early maybe not days earlier but at least half an hour before the job was supposed to actually start so that we could go over things she could introduce me to the kids or he could introduce me to the kids and the house rules so yeah this was just such a huge disconnect for me because I did babysit a time I worked as a nanny and I would never have been thrown in without not meeting the kids first and not talking to the parents and not learning the house rules and various things. Because even when Jessica shows up, the parents are out the door pretty much immediately. Just hi, bye, out the door. Talking of house rules, though, I mean, if we go on to the actual house rules, they were a bit weird, were they not? It's like the whole, don't go into this room. You're not allowed, the room is locked. You're not allowed in. If you do go in, don't touch anything. 
otherwise we'll set the dogs on you or whatever. That seemed very odd. Especially because she shows her where the key is. <laughs> don't go in this locked room, but hey, here's the key. <laughs> yes. Don't think of a hippopotamus. What are you thinking of? Oh, yeah, that's ridiculous. And the kids know where the key is. I mean, going back to the friend with the autistic sister again, they used to lock the kitchen to make sure that the younger child didn't get in. And the key was always just on a hook outside the kitchen. But no child could reach that. In fact, nobody could reach it. We had to get a step stool. But that was specifically to stop the very young child from getting in. Whereas that's just sort of like parading around with the key going, see this key? Never use it. This key? This key that you can get right here? Don't touch it. I know it's in arm's reach, but don't touch it. It's just, you're just being a dick, parents, Mr. Mr. and Mrs. Sampson. To kind of tie in the two plots here, because uh, they are connected besides the fact that nobody wants to be in the water balloon booth. Somehow, Lila has taken a phone to this fair, and it's plugged in somewhere. Uh, supposedly, the base is plugged in at the guardhouse, and Lila is keeping the handset with her in one of the booths. This is her brand new cordless phone, but I have so many questions still. For example... Why does the guardhouse have a landline that they're allowing some kid to plug into instead of leaving it for their security phone? You use the phrase, why are they, Why is the guardhouse letting some kid? This is not some kid. This <laughs> is fucking Lila. They will definitely let her use that. But it wasn't Lila who went and plugged it in. Perhaps Julie used Lila's name when she went down there, which I guess does make sense. This is true because Lila does rule Sweet Valley. So fair enough there. My most pressing question is, why the fuck has an, a lovely, nice middle class school filled with lovely white kids got a fucking guardhouse? It's not a prison. Like, Well, I would be if it was a private school in the U.S. style of private schools, I would be less surprised by that because private schools do tend to have gates and guardhouses. This is a public school. Why the fuck is there a guardhouse at a public school in the early 90s? What the fuck is going on here? Was the actual fair being held on the school grounds? That is always what I pictured. Yeah. Okay, because for some reason when I read it, I thought they were off-site at a park or something I don't, that might mean me just misreading it or something i never got that impression I, but i'm not disputing i think that's what it was i think they went to a park for the end didn't they when they decided to they get, went to the beach no to the beach they went somewhere else yeah. then yeah that's where my confusion comes in there that's fair yeah even if it was at a park why does a park have a card out I have so many questions about Sweet Valley. Is all of Sweet Valley really a prison and they're not letting anyone escape? Because it sort of feels like that. Someone's got their next nano. Yeah, that's a Bleak Valley reference. We can come back to that, definitely. I like it. Uh, So anyway, Lila has taken this phone that leaves me with all these questions. So Jessica can call her and check in. And so Lila can tell her about what's going on at the fair. Instead of talking to Lila, Jessica constantly calls and has Lila take the phone to Elizabeth so she could ask Elizabeth her tips about babysitting. Which is funny in the first place because Lila's starting to get grumpier and grumpier the more times Jessica calls without wanting to talk to her. But also, Elizabeth has never met these kids. Why in the world are she trying to talk to Amy about how to babysit these kids? That's a very fair point. 
Uh, one thing I do like, I mean, we've had a few conversations recently about how YA and various things have have been invented. Well, fiction in general and films and stuff have been um, the plots of these things have been made harder to reconcile with the invention of cell phone technology. So it's nice to see that a, a, a primitive cell phone was being used in this and actually driving the narrative rather than leading it down dark alleys from which the the, uh, the author couldn't extricate themselves from. Yes, Lila was ahead of her time. There is literally nothing that a cell phone could have done to change this because Elizabeth would have just kept hanging up on her or not answering in the first place. So I do like that. That's a very good point. Like this could still happen today, at least based on the technology. Whether a modern parent would have done all this, it's Sweet Valley, maybe. Actually, just to slightly take Raven's point and just run off to Sweet Valley High, I think it was in 2008 they re-released the first 12 Sweet Valley Highs and tried to make them in the now. There's one particular plot point where Jessica gets a bad reputation for being a slut because she stays out all night with an older boy. And obviously back in the 80s, no cell phone. So obviously she couldn't explain herself. She was in a hut in the middle of nowhere. But they gave her a cell phone and she was taking selfies in the lead up to it. And then they had to do this thing where someone snatched it out of her phone and threw it in the lake just to ensure that the same plot could happen. And, yeah, it's so much fun reading the 2008 versions because, like, the old versions are like, and everyone danced around Lila and, I don't know, someone, and formed a dance party or something. And in the new one, it's like, there was a totally lame dance party trying to happen when Lila was dancing with Tom or whatever. And it's like, no! Sweet Valley hipsters like it. <laughs> Leave it in the 80s. It's Otherwise, it's even worse. I do have a question about that, then. Like, you said she was in some isolated cabin why did it have to go to her phone was thrown in the lake? Couldn't it have just been they had no reception? Yeah, no signal. Yeah. Much easier way to do this, ghostwriters. Come yeah. on now. If she's, got a, if she's got an iPhone, then the battery goes out every half hour, so she'll be fine. It's it's great. We're going to have to, when we get to that in 20... <laughs> I don't know when. 2025. They haven't got the new holographic wonder phones that we've just picked up. The iPhone 35 <laughs> that can drive you to work <laughs> how backwards at are these that people? point it will be a chip in our eye that we just project in front of us to see everything <laughs> nice okay so we've dealt with the crap parents and the bad house rules what about the kids because i do feel a bit sorry for jessica in this one because originally her job was to babysit two kids and then another two kids turn up so she's got to babysit four kids all of a sudden and that was never on the, the remit, was it? I have to say, I really liked this book because I thought it was awesome seeing Jessica deal with four versions of her younger self. Like, they were all a bag of dicks. It was like, yeah, you have earned this so many times. This is awesome. Jessica's fragmented psyche, the four parts of Jessica laid in front of her. Oh, God, I've got to deal with my vanity now. with wearing big purple unicorns on the back of the couch seats in the forbidden room. The twin magic thing at the end, you apparently enjoyed it, Wing? Is that... I did. I thought it was ridiculous but entertaining because it was just so they running from place to place and seeking around. One of the twins seeks around to be able to hear where the other twin says they're going to go, and the kids are all excited. 
And it does, I mean, minus the twin magic part, but giving the kids something fun to do at some sort of project where they run around and do different things is exactly what you need to do with stubborn kids like that. So it, I like that part quite a bit. Uh, I don't normally like their twin magic because it's really just ridiculous and pointless, but I thought it was fairly well used here, even though I was still not happy that Elizabeth gave in and went to help her sister. Like she stole the job. Jessica brought this on herself. Let her figure her shit out. The kids aren't in any actual danger from the phone calls, at least. And from reading, we know they weren't, too. So there was no reason for her to go spineless again when she'd finally grown a spine. I mean, I, I, I do agree with that. But you could also take it that Elizabeth knows very well what Jessica's like and was like, actually, are the kids in danger? Jessica's looking after them. There's four there at the moment. There might just be three and a big lump in the back garden under the rose bushes by the time hey, that I kids, get there. <laughs> I've got an activity for us. It's called Berry Peter Sampson. <laughs> if you're not quick, you're going in the hole with him. Nice. Nice. To be fair, she was only left with two kids. If there are only two kids when the parents get back, <laughs> just gives fulfilled her purpose. <laughs> nice. Nice, yeah. Just Add to the, the, the body count. Yeah, the two older kids are left. Well, these were the two kids, yeah. You don't have any more kids. <laughs> kids all look alike, right? I do think you made a really good point earlier about how she's, the job is for two kids, and she's being paid a set rate per hour, not per kid. So, yeah, suddenly she's got four kids for most of the afternoon, and her pay rate doesn't change at all. And even the little bonus they give her at the end because the kids are so happy, that's not enough to cover twice as much work for the same amount of pay so she really does get shit on in this book yeah well to be fair she probably took it out on revenge and went and crapped on one of the pillows in the master bedroom stay classy raven <laughs> no i mean I, I did actually quite enjoy this book overall to be fair it was uh, as you say i thought it was fun watching jessica completely out of her depth just phoning around and saying no oh, they're speaking the kids are speaking i don't know what to do you know literally from the very the inauspicious to beginnings until the end of it when they're leaving dirty footprints on the ceiling or whatever ridiculous things they're doing yeah uh, it was nice to see her wallowing and elizabeth was pretty cool until her grand caving when she was just like nope sorry not my problem you got yourself into this i enjoyed the babysitting once i got past the weird i don't believe this is actually happening the babysitting itself was great both the kids were fun and funny and driving jessica up the wall which was awesome and Jessica trying different things and going from, oh, no, I've got this. It'll be super easy to, oh, my God, I'm pulling my hair out. And Jessica was great. The fair itself was really entertaining what we saw of it, besides the whole weirdness of what they are and aren't throwing at people, which I still hold. They should be chucking bottles at Lila. It was pretty fun. One of the things that kind of annoyed me about it, besides the details we've hit, it's just a little small thing, but it disproportionately annoyed me is that every time Jessica sees a new kid that she's babysitting, they're scratching their arm randomly. And in fact, that's how she starts to recognize the older kids when they turn up. And I could have sworn this was going to go to a chicken pox storyline where suddenly all the kids are sick and Jessica's been exposed and it's this whole big, huge deal. But no, it was just they were scratching for no reason that ever was cleared up and it's out. Why would you introduce that and use it as an identifier for the kids for no reason? What the hell, Ghost Rider? Like I said, disproportionately annoyed by some little throwaway detail. On that subject, 
I actually put something in your recap where everything's wrapped up neatly and they all go to the beach. And then there's this line like Ken Matthews suggested that they take some water balloons if they get too hot. And that irrationally annoys me. It's just so cloyingly smug. I want to meet the ghostwriter and rip out their soul and wear it as a fascinator. I'm just livid about that. And there's no reason for it. You know, it's a very meh sentence. It's perfectly in place in these kind of books. But for some reason, it angers me deeply. I do like how at this point we generally are enjoying what we're reading, but there's some detail that just gets it under the skin and we can't let it go, even if it's the most pointless detail out of the whole book. There are no pointless details. Every single thing is put in there just to piss someone off. I really thought you were going to, like, paraphrase that that old, there are no stupid questions. I thought it was like, there are no pointless details, there are only pointless people. <laughs> Welcome to Sweet Valley. <laughs> Marvellous. So, uh, do you think we've tackled this book, or is there anything else anyone wants to say? I'm good. I think I'm I need to say. Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, I'm still bitter I didn't get this one, and I instead got the silly monarchy book. Wing did swap with me the following month, so that's all good. Okay. Right. Well, I recapped Princess Elizabeth, in which exchange student Arthur Castle comes to visit Sweet Valley from the beautiful European country of Santa Dora. He is most taken with America. He wants to eat hamburgers, go to the beach and say the word dude. After a few hiccups, such as the whole Celsius Fahrenheit thing and not really understanding what a milkshake is because aren't foreigners funny, he strikes up a friendship with Elizabeth. He expresses delight in the wonders of the U.S. of A. And Liz sets about making a scrapbook of American memorabilia, including baseball cards and the Confederate flag. On a trip to get the funny shaken milk, Arthur offers to pay but drops his money on the floor. Liz picks it up, excited at all the different shiny colours on the paper. To be fair, most money is prettier than the American dollar. And she sees that Arthur is on the currency, even though that makes no sense. So Arthur spills his sorry story. He is not Arthur Castle, ordinary boy. He is Arthur Castillo, Santa Doran prince. He begs her not to tell anyone because he just wants to be normal. And he can already tell that Liz is worrying about how to address him and should she curtsy and all that kind of nonsense. Liz agrees and promises to take his secret to the grave. The next day in school, Arthur approaches a twin and reiterates that nobody can know I'm a prince, then runs off before confirming which twin he spoke to. Naturally, it was the wrong twin, and within seconds, the entire school is bowing and curtsying and taking him to museums and symphonies and all that other boring stuff that royals are forever doing. And even worse, he's not speaking to Liz because he's convinced that she spilled a secret. The unicorns are besotted with Arthur now that he's royal and stick to him like glue. They throw him a big party and he invites Jess to be his date because if you can't be with the one you love, be with her face. The guilt eventually gets to her and she fesses up to telling everyone about him. Arthur is delighted that Elizabeth didn't betray him and invites both twins to a super posh party at the consulate. Everything is awesome! Is that the end? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was quite an epic ending to that. Everything is awesome. Drop mic. <laughs> Dove out. Nice. Dove, why don't you tell us a little bit about your hate on for Royal Family, because that really colours your entire recap of this. Okay. Well, my issue is 
that this country, according to the Daily Mail, has the viewpoint of immigrants are coming over here and taking our benefits. And what happens when me, a British born and bred person who's worked all my life, comes to retire and there's no money because the immigrants have taken it all out of the pot? That kind of bullshit is what the Daily Mail is peddling on a daily basis. And then we have a bunch of Germans who don't do any work, who are given castles and don't have to pay for anything. I'm just like, don't quite balance. They don't do anything. I mean, they're good for tourism. I mean, you know, they do have their pluses. Like if one of them dies, we might get a half day off work. That's kind of nice. But fundamentally, I have issues with the fact that they just don't contribute. I had to jump through hoops to get benefits and for disability. And I've got to say, when you're physically disabled, jumping through hoops is fucking hard. They just get to sit in castles doing fuck all. I mean, I know royalists will immediately come come back and go sort of like, oh, you don't know how much they do. And, uh, you know, I know they sort of open supermarkets or whatever it is they do public appearances what do the royal family do except for sell newspapers when kate heroically battles her morning sickness to drop her kid off at school with her fleet of drivers and pas and shit like that i mean seriously what is the fucking point of these unelected sponges i mean personally i mean i think the royals do something i think they do they do a lot for tourism without without that lot you know it is a big industry that is driven by people coming over here to look at them. Whether that's enough is another thing. I think the issue is with the coverage, as you've touched on, the coverage that they get over here is massively overblown. Like you're saying about the the um, the morning sickness stuff, and you know, oh God, no. And, and today's main story is Prince George has lost a sock, and it's like literally, who gives a pimply shit? Nobody. Apart from five people who who sit there and you know walk a thousand miles and queue for five days in a camper in, in a small sleeping bag outside the royal just so they could smell the queen's farts as she walked past, most people in this country don't care enough to warrant that amount of coverage. On the subject of farts, I do remember it being front page news that one of the royals on the balcony when they were waving broke wind and everyone got the giggles. That was front page news. Someone farted and it was front page news. I mean, you've got a president called Trump and that in itself is rather funny. But, you know, front page news. Really? There's very little about Trump that is funny. (laughs) I will say it's not just you guys. Like, we don't obviously get quite as much coverage. But there is a weird streak of royal love here in the U.S. And specifically obsession with the British royal family that makes no sense to me on many, 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 many levels, starting with the fact that we fought a war to not be a part of the empire and just continuing from there. There's this huge obsession with, oh, Kate took her son to school or, oh, look, she has to discipline her child in public, too, sometimes. And, oh, look, here are the rules of what happens when you eat dinner with the queen and blah, 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 blah. But we don't have royalty. Why are we so obsessed with this? And I'm sure the majority of people here aren't. But there is this outspoken minority of people that are obsessed with it, who stay up all night to watch the wedding and just all sorts of strange things. And I don't understand it. It doesn't annoy me the way it does Dove, because obviously I don't live in a country that has a monarchy. So we don't have that same sort of 
everyone's taking our benefits, but the monarchy gets pretty much the same benefits on a massive level. But uh, I don't get the appeal of this monarchy thing. And I do think it ties in very much to that idea that, oh, I'm a secret princess or, oh, I'm a secret prince and I'll have all this power and wealth and I'll get to do fancy things. But I don't understand that dream. I think my turning point when I went from searing indifference to blinding hatred was when Diana died in 97. And it was just all day, Candle in the Wind by Elton John, nonstop coverage, the funeral. It was just weeks and weeks of this shit and Elton John being number one in the charts. And my dad died in 1990 and as far as I can tell only me and my mum gave a shit and I was like oh think of the children oh fuck off they have got so many videotapes of things that she did and photos of her everywhere fuck off people die she was not any more important than anybody else on the planet that coverage actually happened here pretty much the same as it did there, I think, just 24-7 constant barrage. And this was in the 90s before 24-7 news was really a thing, which is impressive in and of itself. We didn't have the same technology that we do now to spread that kind of information immediately. And yet it was still here, weeks and weeks and weeks of it. And even now, there's still, there's not a year that goes by that someone doesn't do some sort of retrospective on her. So I think that she, for the current levels of royal obsession here, she definitely drove it a lot, in part because I think it feeds into that idea that you don't have to be this already be a royal princess or in the royal line to marry into royalty. That idea that, you know, even a commoner could become royalty, which isn't actually what happened, but is kind of the story that was fed over here. I could definitely see that when that's what they're talking about, this one death is so important and think about how terrible it is for her kids and on and on and on, and how if you've lost a parent at an even younger age, that that is going to seem like an obsession that is just a slap in the face. I will concede that, obviously, it was tragic the way that, you know, she died, because that was the paparazzi and all that. So my anger is targeted in on the obsession with the fact that she was dead and she left two kids behind because plenty of people die leaving kids behind. It's not downgrading no. the actual circumstances. Of course but, not. Like her yeah. death was sad and the circumstances were terrible. And it is sad when kids lose a parent, but just because of where she sits in, in the media attention and where the family that she had married into, it does become an obsession that, elevates them above everyone else, which is the whole point of royalty, which is why I don't understand the obsession with it, especially in countries that are supposed to believe that everyone's equal. I mean, bizarrely, I mean, I can sort of see the fascination with the Diana thing, because taken from a side, yes, it is, I mean, the the two young princes, their mum did die, and it is tragic that, you know, it's tragic when, you know, Dove's dad died and when my dad died and, and so on. Whenever somebody dies, to, it's always tragic to someone. And the fact that they're princes doesn't make it any less tragic for them. But I think, weirdly, with the Diana thing, going back to what I said before, the coverage was the driving thing. Again, it's the coverage which is which is the uh, overwhelming thing. Because I'm sure that, the, you know, the royal family don't drive that amount of coverage. They're not the ones who say... We must be in the paper all this time. It is driven by something. Something, you know, it, it sells papers, I guess. 
Um, so therefore, the overwhelming and omnipresent coverage of her death is actually, it's down to the papers themselves and their choice to do that. And you've got the parallel with that, that the coverage might have been something that actually drove her death because of the paparazzi. So that sort of duality thing, I think, is actually a bit, a bit more interesting. You know, it's like, all this coverage because of her death. Her death was because of the coverage that they get. You know, there is, there's mileage in discussing that, I think. I agree. And I think it's kind of that snake eating its own tail situation. You're right, because the obsession with her is, is what drove this sort of situation to occur. Her death drove the obsession higher. This coverage keeps cycling. And if, what's interesting to me is that, so we didn't get it quite as much over here with the think of her children. It was more about what the royal family over there did to drive this woman to her death. But uh, if that's what the coverage was there, was about thinking of the children, the coverage itself at that point, that obsession is harmful to the family in mourning. Like, I can't, I can't imagine what it would have done to me when my mom died if I was then watching all of this coverage and obsession and conspiracy theories over her death when all I want to do is mourn the fact that she died, which is tragic. So, yeah, I think that's a really good point to make. Uh, and I think, too, I I can see how maybe some of the royal family, as it exists now, do kind of drive that attention. And they obviously benefit a lot from where they are. But it is an interesting point as to who is driving the obsession. Does it fall on the royal family? Does it fall on the newspapers and the media for trying to build up the royal family as something that sells papers and stories and ad space? Does it follow the people who have become obsessed? And if they are obsessed, why are they obsessed? Is because it's all this constant coverage. If you take a step back, it's an interesting look at what drives our obsessions as people. Is it just having them in front of us? Is there something about royalty specifically? Can the media tell us? what we are going to obsess about next. Like, it's kind of a frightening consideration. A couple of things just to end on this because before it gets into a massive podcast about the royals and all that. I think, one, I think that the um, the obsession with royalty plays entirely into the unicorn's hands. I think in this in this, in this this series, I think it's a good, not a good thing, but I think it's, it's totally in keeping of what we know about Jessica and Lila and all that, that that is, obsession does get driven. And then I'm sure we'll discuss that in a sec. But just to round off the talk on the royals, you know, for example, the the old adage is that the Queen thinks the world smells of paint because wherever she goes to open, it's been painted the day before to make it look as pristine as possible. And um, I think it was Frankie Boyle. It was definitely on Mock the Week anyway, sharing the story of um, one of his friends was a caretaker at a some sort of community centre or school or something that was being opened by the Queen uh, at a a certain time and one of the provisos they had to do in order to secure the Queen's visit was they had to provide her with her own newly built toilet facilities that nobody else could use in, in case she was caught short so they built an entire toilet that nobody had used and it was only available to her during the day and she did use it during the day and he was given the job of cleaning the, the bathroom afterwards, and he said when he went in there, there was a pube on the seat of the toilet, which he kept in a matchbox. 
So, yeah, if you see that on eBay, I don't think it'll have a certificate of authentication, but, yeah, it's probably going to be worth quite a few bob to somebody. Okay. Well, in a non-pube-related story, the only interesting thing I think about the royal family is apparently you're not allowed to hug the Queen unless she initiates it. And apparently the only person she has initiated a hug with is Michelle Obama, which I think is cool. But I'm coming at at that with a pro-Obama slant rather than a, yay, the royals are so cool slant. Dude, who doesn't want to hug Michelle Obama? Yeah, exactly. So that's pretty much the only thing that I think is interesting about the royal family. And that's to do with the U.S. First Lady. To bring it back around to Raven's point, it is definitely fitting that the unicorns and Jessica are obsessed. And even that most of the people in the school are obsessed with the idea. So I think over here, especially at this time, it would have fed into not necessarily the obsession with the British royal family, but just this idea of secret princes and uh, being chosen to be a princess and whisked away, that kind of Disney fairy tale-esque thing. So for their age, I think it's much more of a Disney driven thing with an obsession with all royalty everywhere or with specific royalty. The idea of royalty and the idea of becoming a princess is the big driving point. And especially with Lila and the unicorns being in control and having that power, they already dress like royalty and they're unofficially the royalty of Sweet Valley. So you're right. It's very fitting that they become obsessed. First of all, that he's this cute new guy that showed up. But when they find out he's a prince, they definitely want to focus on him being a prince and make all of these things like he would experience his royalty in his own country, because that's what they're obsessed about. Not him as a person, but this idea of royalty. It's weird, though, because one of the things that they had to do as a school, or as a, sorry, as a sixth grade, when um, Arthur Castle, he was called A. Castle, because they're not guess he was royal. Ridiculous. One of the things they had to do, they, they were like, oh, we'll go and research Santa Doran things all artifacts and we'll we'll, uh, you know research their history and their foods and stuff and i'm surprised someone like elizabeth just didn't go yeah i'll go and research it let's have a read oh there's the royals there's a picture hang on that's fucking arthur in 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 a book and just go you know that's her bread and butter she should have known that from the start if you ask me and we know from the opening paragraph that the books do have pictures in it because jessica is reading it and we know that she can't deal with books with words in but that's not just me being bitchy. It does clarify that there are pictures of cute boys with olive skin and dark hair. The pop-up book of Santa Doran history. <laughs> I think that would be amazing. Pop-up books of anything are amazing, especially when it's not like a kid's pop-up book, but like the pop-up book of murder. That's fantastic. Or the, um, the, all the Game of Thrones ones are really good as well, the pop-up Game of Thrones book. It's like all of a sudden, a massive wall. Okay. <laughs> I, yeah, you guys make good points. Like, someone should have noticed this. It's not like he's never had a picture taken of him before. It shouldn't have come down to him being on the money and Elizabeth recognizing that, which I'll let you guys rant about why he should or should not be on the money. But Yeah, uh, I was just about to say, you know, this, this story fails on so many levels because, as Raven said, Liz, should, Liz, at the very least, should have done the research. Second of all, why is Arthur on the currency? George isn't on our currency. You know, our thousand-year-old queen is still on the currency because she's determined not to die. I mean, she's still going to be going in, like, 3042 or something. She's still going to be there out of pure bloody-mindedness. And 
that I almost admire. And here we have um, the royal procession going down, and there is the disembodied hand of Queen Elizabeth II. <laughs> Thanks, Mom, we love you. And there is one of the page boys holding the hand up and presenting it to the crowd. Lovely, lovely. <laughs> the thing with the money, I mean, I don't mind the fact that, that Arthur's on the money. Because, surely, I mean, randomly, I mentioned this in the recap, when when I read your um, take on this, I went and researched what's on various banknotes and disappeared down a small rabbit hole into Wikipedia and was reading about the fact that all the, all the banknotes from Bosnia, Herzegovina have all got poets on them and stuff like this. So I think the fact that, the, that a member of the royal family is on there, I think that's okay. I think that, for example, on the 50 Santa Doran pecs or whatever they've got, there might be the the king and then the queen on the on the 20 and then Arthur on the 10 or something like that. I, I can see that as being believable. It's not something that we've had in this country, but if that was so, a fact that I found out about a, a, a country in somewhere, I'd be like, yep, yeah, that's okay. That's that's within the realms of possibility. So, yeah, it's not as if he's like a plumber. I now want to read a retelling of this story where actually he's just a like really young published writer, like the youngest ever published writer. And that's how he got on the bunk notes. And everyone jumps to the conclusion that he must royalty. And he's just like cashing it in. That's a story I want to read. That would be cool. Oh, yeah. The fact that he's actually just Arthur Castle. And he's like, yeah, I'm a prince, but I don't want anyone to know about it. He just tells them that on day one, just so they do know about it and start giving him all these cool things. Taking him to all these museums that he can never afford to go and see. Yeah, he secretly loves Mozart. He's like, you know what I fucking hate? Museums and Mozart. And chocolate. I hate chocolate. Always being given chocolate because I'm a prince. Yeah, I mean, going back to that, that was another trope that's been used in these books before. It's the, like, you know, hmm, what is this weird circular disc? A frisbee? I've never seen one of them before. It's like, oh, grow up. You're a prince in a well-developed country that's come over here to have talks with American diplomats or for some, some mission, and you're telling me you don't know what a telly is. Behave yourself. I liked it when Julie asked him if he ha- if they had washing machines in Santa Dora. It's like... I mean, I think she was at, she actually thought he was visiting for, from the 1400s. Like, she didn't really get that a different country wasn't a different time zone. I mentioned in the uh, in the recap that I thought she could have just been trolling him. Saying, so, yeah, do you have a third dimension in your country or is everything just flat? We have the colour red. Do you know what the colour red is? Stuff like that. (laughs) Just really winding him up. Yeah, I'd have more more, more appreciation for that. I like that theory a lot more. Unfortunately, I know way too many Americans who would seriously ask, oh, do you have indoor plumbing? Oh, do you have this? Oh, do you have that? And normally that would happen to countries in South America or Africa more than Europe, but it would, it's still possible to happen in countries in Europe that they just don't think they're as advanced as the U.S. with its, you know, indoor plumbing and air conditioning and raw, raw USA. I just want to tell a story. When we went to Vegas for the first time, Wing and Ostrich organized us to go on one of those timeshare talks so that we got free tickets to the aquarium because we fucking love the aquarium. Fisher are our friends. Indeed. And um, Wing introduced us to the person who was going to be giving us our one-on-one talk. And she went, oh, these are our friends, uh, Dove and Raven, and they're from England. And the first question that was asked was, oh, brilliant. Do they speak English? 
There was just this long moment of silence from the four of us, and then just laughter. It was beautiful. And she was very apologetic and very embarrassed and laughed at herself. That is probably my favorite moment of many, many moments that we've had wonderful things. And it led to a really fun tour, but oh my God. Yeah, she was adorable, and, you know, it was just a brain fart from her, but it was just such a perfect moment. Okay, well, I suppose back to the actual book. I think you can tell that we don't like this book because we've we found any excuse to talk about anything else. We haven't actually talked about anything in this book yet, apart from apart from Arthur Castle not recognising what a frisbee is. We've been spectacular at avoiding the book. Um, I just thought it was stupid. Uh, one thing I did like about the book, I quite liked Elizabeth in this book. I thought she was nice and I thought she was genuine. In, in her dealings with Arthur, I thought it was quite nice that she didn't immediately think Jessica's fucked me over again with with the the thing that's that's gone wrong. And so yeah, I, I did actually feel for her when Arthur sort of went, oh she's a bitch, and you know decided that she'd been the one who'd um, sold him down the river. Yeah. I liked her here too, and I particularly like the fact that she doesn't tell Jessica. Like, so often it's someone will tell Elizabeth a secret and she'll immediately run and tell Jessica because Jessica would never betray her privacy, which, alright, whatever. But she doesn't this time, and I like that it wasn't news that spread because Elizabeth trusted Jessica and shouldn't have. It's that someone else didn't take two seconds to determine which twin he's talking to when he knows the twins exist. So yeah. I like that about her, too. And I do think that her hurt over how he reacts to her after the news spreads is very realistic and made me feel for her. I was sympathetic to her quite a bit in this book. Me, too. I It was the first book I actually liked her. But also, I found that Arthur was incredibly stupid because, as Wing just said, he's aware that the twins exist and that they're identical. But after he tells Jessica, so... At the same time, she's having a unicorn meeting, spilling his secret. He comes over to Elizabeth uh, uh, to visit Elizabeth. And she says, oh, I wasn't in school today or this morning. I was at the dentist. And he doesn't go, oh, that's weird, because I swear to God I talked to you and went, don't tell anyone I'm a prince. Arthur had to hold the idiot ball for this to work, because I think Elizabeth, for the first time ever, was actually really nice, did the right thing, and actually made herself clear. Like, it wasn't one of those oh, she said half a sentence and one person ran off with it. She made herself clear. She explained she wasn't in school when he talked to her. And he just went, oh, what is this thing called washing dishes? I like it, you know? That's a really good point that I didn't actually catch while reading it. But you're right. She flat out tells him she wasn't there and he still does it. Oh, hey, but who did I talk to? Hmm. Another issue I had with Arthur at first, at least, was when... It all came out, and Je- um, Jessica apologised, and he then invited Jessica and Elizabeth to the big reception, or whatever it is, with the big pile of Ferrero Rocher, or whatever they eat over there. Um, and at first I was like, why are you inviting Jessica? I mean, you like Elizabeth. I understand inviting Elizabeth, because the whole confusion has now been cleared up. And I was like, why are you inviting Jessica as well? Because all she's done is blagged a free date off you, and basically made your a big chunk of your life a misery in there by telling everyone that you really like the panpipes of Sandoria and going to see Mozart museums or whatever. 
and, and, and not treating you like a prince. No, no, not treating you like the, the the normal boy that you wanted to be, Pinocchio. You know. So I was like, what the hell? Just kick her to the curb and just take Elizabeth. But then I thought, hang on, he's a twelve-year-old boy. He's going to a big reception where all eyes will be on him and the royal family. He's going to want to walk in with a hot blonde on each arm, isn't he? So, yeah, fair play to you, Arthur. I'll raise my glass to you, sir. It's Sweet Valley High. This is up into a really dirty threesome that the media goes wild over. Also, uh, does anyone want to touch on how many Confederate flags were given to the Spanish boy? Well, Santa Doran. Yeah, I'm just like... Must we? Really? Like, I'm an English person, and I find that a bit disquieting. So, um... Yeah, odd. There's some complications over whether Spaniards are considered people of color over here in general. And they certainly don't face the same, quite the same racism that Mexicans or other Hispanic, uh, people from Hispanic countries would come experience when they come here. However, that aside, the whole obsession with the Confederate flag is just so jarring and not because it doesn't happen now because it does still happen now very regularly which is part of why it's so jarring to me it's not like this is some historically racist item that's no longer around and oh look at how terrible it is in this book this would happen if this book was set today they would still very likely give him some sort of confederate flag except that sweet valley is very upper class white people in california who generally, even in the 90s, pride themselves at not being those sort of southern racists who obsess over the Confederate flag. So it was very weird to me that these specific people were giving it to him. He at one point does buy something himself that has one on it that he's just run into in a store, which sucks, but makes somewhat more sense. But they start gifting him things with it on it, and it just doesn't make sense for this perfect white Sweet Valley setting. Taking it out of the um, the Sweet Valley setting and, and, and framing it in the time of the book, The Dukes of Hazard. If you remember that show, that was very popular at a certain time. Could that have been just very popular at the time that this book was written? So that was something that was easy. That was something that easily flung to mind as like a a symbol of something American. I would fight that as earlier than this, but hold it on. Might well be. It sense. might well be. I'm not sure of the actual time on that. But I remember when I was in school, like in the early 80s, I, I remember playing, uh, you know, we used to play the Dukes of Hazard in the playground, running around pretending we were in the car and jumping around and stuff like that. So, yeah, that's thinking about my age. <laughs> the age of this is probably a little bit before. So I don't have the date on this book, though I assume Dove might know offhand when the time of these books are being out. So Dukes of Hazard ran through 85. So it could very well still be piling onto that. Part of that interesting bit about that is though, is that the whole generally the car and the Confederate flag on that are huge things that flag them as these Southern good old yeah. boys, which still wouldn't play very well in an upper class West coast town like Sweet Valley, which uh, is interesting to me. And I didn't know that it had traveled so far to you guys. Like, that was something that you guys played at. That's interesting. The Dukes of Hazard was very popular when I was young. You would also assume that with Arthur being who he was, 
he might have a bit more insight into various politics and histories and upheavals in countries more than the average 12 year old child would so maybe that's it should have flagged with point. him too that is a very good point you say that's a very good point but this is the guy who doesn't know what a fucking frisbee is <laughs> and is alarmed by shaken milk despite the fact that you know mcdonald's has been over there well obviously santadora is fictional but i looked up where it was in france and spain because apparently it's between the two and yeah they were there from around 81 to 83 so it would have mcdonald's would have definitely hit santadora for some time and i remember getting milkshakes in primary school so so you're right raven as written it doesn't make sense for him in this theoretical world where things are logical a prince from a country in europe probably would be more aware of some sort of political complication. So that is a fair point to both of you. Yeah. So overall, this book sucked. Um, Elizabeth was the best thing in it. And I think that's that's a pretty damning indictment of, of the book, really. Yeah. If that's your take away from it, then you know something's gone terribly wrong during the reading of it. OK, fantastic. Shall we move on to the big camp secret? Every time you say that, I just picture Stephen Magnet from, um, <laughs> from My, My Little, Little Pony. Pony. Yeah. yeah. The jokes just write themselves with that title. Yeah. Raven particularly wanted this book because of the title. He's been making inappropriate jokes the whole time. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> the Big Camp Secret deals with Sweet Valley Middle's attempts to lose their entire sixth grade to campfire mishap, bear attack and bandit ambush in a two-week sojourn to a local sleepaway camp. The twins are delighted, as Elizabeth is promised horse love, and Jessica gets a swathe of new victims to torture. The single pube in the ointment is Grace Oliver, who was unable to attend due to reasons. Her parents are on the brink of divorce, and therefore Grace is not allowed any fun. Brackets all caps. Camp frolics are in full swing when the big camp secret is revealed. Grace has snuck away to join the camp, and is doing her best to mingle with the singles and share the reindeer games with her friends while sleeping in an abandoned shack nearby. Most of the campers are in on the secret and are happy to keep their friend away from the gimlet gazers of the totally ineffectual camp counsellors. The exception is a bad seed from another school, Barbara Fields. She's on to the whole thing and she's ready to spill the beans if she doesn't get her way blackmail style. Things deteriorate in a wholly predictable way, with Barbara's demands getting more and more outlandish, and Grace eventually runs away in a raging storm to spare her friends the indignity of the blackmail for a moment longer. The secret is out, and everyone searches for Grace in the storm before the weather kills her. Her saviour? Well, let's guess. It's Barbara fucking Fields. It seems that Barbara isn't a bellend after all. She's just going through a similar thing as Grace, and is lashing out because her parents don't love each other or her or life. They just love crystal meth. After a ridiculous scene in which a shack made of wet logs is struck by lightning and explodes like a fucking petrol tanker, everyone is saved and the campers have a big dance with the boys from across the lake. Because dancing with cute boys is a universal panacea and the preteen love fest closes with a naked Mr. Nydick overlooking the scene wanking like a gibbon. The big camp secret, largely shit. Raven out. Yeah, that's the lot. <laughs> Mic drop. So that was book. delightful. I will say that I, this was one of the books that I always reread as a young teen. This and Camp Fear, which uh, Wing and I recapped. Well, Wing actually did the recap over on PointHorror.com. 
because I actually love the concept of sleepaway camp, which is not something you get in England, which is a bit annoying. Yeah, I think that was one of my disconnects with this. It was like, oh, camp books. And the only exposure that I have had to camp books or camp stories is via American media, just watching TV or reading, you know, a TV show in which a camp happens or a book in which a camp happens. So they are largely driven by the outlandish stories that come from them. So the actual... an actual camp there's no frame of reference you know it's like well yes when you go to camp there's always somebody who's trying to murder the kids or there's always somebody trying to escape or something like that so yeah it it was hard to sort of ground it in reality having been to camp those are very true statements i am a survivor uh this does make me wonder like sometimes i think i should be the one to do the camp book so i do have a frame of reference but then i remember how much i love it when you guys talk about things that you've never experienced before so no i like how this is going <laughs> oh i'd do this book again because you know there was a fair chunk of stuff that i enjoyed and um but overall it, uh, no it, it wasn't very good I was massively jealous of anyone who got to go to camp because we actually went camping with the guides. They finally started taking us on, I think it was like a three-day camp, and we stayed in this amazing log cabin with triple-decker bunk beds, and it was just awesome, and we were like roasting marshmallows and doing all the things that you do, that you see in American media going, go to summer camp, it's fun. And it was awesome, but they only did it in the last year that I was in the guides. And I was actually willing to stay in the guides for another year. And all of my friends went, no, it's not cool. We're 13 now. We're going to start smoking and hanging out with boys. I'm like, I want to go camping. Your friend's unicorns. There's another word that springs to mind, but it's not unicorn. It's four (laughs) letters. Very unpleasant. I think that's why I'm so attached to this book, even though it's not very good. Same with Camp Fear over on Point Horror. I'm just still very jealous that people get to go for away, uh, go away for a while. I think we talked about this on holiday because we passed a summer camp when we were driving around somewhere, and I think I expressed jealousy then as well. Uh, the, the nearest I came to in, in my school days of that was the first year of secondary school, so that was age 11 stroke 12. We were taken to France, and we went to a um, the northern northern no, was it southern France? Oh, yeah, it was southern France, because I was in the med. Yeah, southern France. And we went there for a week. But that was in, like, chalets and stuff. But we did activities and stuff. But it was more like, let's go to this historical place and, and, and see this thing. Very much the stuff that Arthur Castle would have hated. But, but you know, it was that, that that was as close as we got. But there was not the, the supreme earthiness that you get from these camping stories, stories when you're all sat around a fire eating s'mores and, you know, talking about ghosts and stuff like that. You know, there was never any of that. I take it you weren't in the scouts or the cups or anything like that, because a lot of this, uh, the stuff you're talking about is something that we did sort of like on one offs in the guides. And I fucking love the girl guides. I don't think anyone who knows me in real life would actually believe that because I think they think I grew up, you know, injecting heroin into my eyeballs and murdering people. But I was actually really very sweet and nice as a small child and i fucking love this stuff yeah you just got into heroin injection and murder when you were like 15 16 didn't you so a bit of a difference i was actually in the boys brigade um when i was younger and i i've got two memories of the boys brigade um because i wasn't in there for long i I can't remember why um but one we had to do a a, a 20 mile uh, 40 mile walk along the Whittle Way, which is very, very picturesque. 
and it was over two days and we had to take a backpack full of books with us to weight ourselves down um, and there was one like camping thing one like night of camping there but it was just like massive walk camp get up massive walk go home um, so it wasn't really a, a camp thing and the other one was when they decided for some reason at one of our meetings that we all wanted a portion of chips so three of us went over to the chippy and bought 75 portions of chips from the chip shop and it was an absolute nightmare because you could just see the poor bloke stood behind us waiting there for his fish supper going how much what have you just ordered 75 portions fucking hell I'm leaving and just leaving and because we, we got them and we were eating them and they didn't have salt and vinegar on and I was like, we got, we haven't got salt and vinegar on this. And the guy was like, yeah, well, we thought that was taking the piss, asking them to put 75 portions of salt and chips with salt and vinegar on. I'm like, yeah, I think the, the actual buying 75 portions was, if you're going to go there, you might as well go, yeah, salt and vinegar, individually wrapped, get it all sorted. If you're going to be a dick, be a massive dick. But anyway, I digress. Yeah, those, those weren't the kind of things we did. Like, we, I think at one point we we were painting wooden spoons to celebrate like 75 years of girl guiding or whatever and we had to make a bonnet we had to dress in a certain way and yeah we were doing all these things and yeah it it was awesome I, I really enjoyed being a girl guide in contrast while I go to a summer camp I went two years one summer was like this in that very middle of nowhere in the woods cabins blah 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 the other summer was not uh i did not do girl scouts i attended a couple meetings when i was slightly older teenagerhood and got at i guess maybe preteen and got asked to not return because of my uh potty mouth so <laughs> did nice. camp, no chance to be a girl scout our team leader like not the brown owls or tawny owls or any of the owls uh just like one of the older girls who was in charge of Basically, the oldest four were given a fleet of about five who were who were a bit younger. Uh, she got asked to leave because she once spent an entire brownie session teaching us how to perfectly slash your jeans because her advice was to stretch them out, so wedge them in the door and then pull them really tight and then steal the sharpest knife you could and just scrape it back and forth sideways, not down, so you're not cutting, you're just scraping. And when Brownell found out about that, she was asked to leave because uh, she was encouraging young'uns to go and get knives and wedge their doors shut. (laughs) I love her so much. She's my new hero. I think she was called Rachel, if you need to put a a name to to the idea of a girl with a knife. I love you, Rachel, the girl with the knife. As she come to think of it, she looked like one of the Wakefield twins. How alarming is that? That was not what you were picturing, was it, Wink? I take it back, Rachel. I don't love you anymore. <laughs> okay, going back to the book. Again, we've spent the last few podcasts just randomly waffling about every, anything other than the books. So apologies out there, listeners, if you're here for the the, 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 the hot Sweet Valley action and you're just hearing about us about how much we hate the royals and how much we enjoy going camping and stuff. The thing is, I really like this book. I don't know why I'm avoiding talking about it. Okay, so what did you like about it then, um, Wayne? Well, obviously I'm predisposed to like a summer camp setting. 
I like seeing them out of their element and doing new things. And as much as I miss Lila during these super editions, I do like how the social structure breaks down. There's not quite so much unicorns versus everyone else or Elizabeth's little newspaper group versus everyone else. It's kind of spread out where people are friends. And I made a note of this in the recap. And as I was reading back over it, I realized that Anytime Lila's not around, the social structure breaks down. So does the whole social structure of the sixth grade in Sweet Valley turn around Lila? I think it does. No, that makes perfect sense. That makes perfect sense. Lila is the touchstone around everybody. She's the, the sun around which the unicorns revolve. I, I, I take, I, I do, I do, um, I like the fact that everyone works together, but it's weird in this because it's okay, it's still the same formulaic stuff that we get from Sweet Valley. It's still, Instead of being, for example, the Sweet Valley Sixers against somebody or the Unicorns against somebody, it's just Sweet Valley against other. Because there's always somebody new who's introduced, in like like Barbara Fields, and everyone was like, right, fuck Barbara Fields, she's a cow, we don't like her, we're going to mess with her or whatever, whatever it is. Because, you know, she's being awful back. And it was the same with the um, the one with the embassy. It was the the new girl who well, in the choir, who was determined to win. And you know, so so while it is different and it is refreshing that everyone is friends, it's everyone still united against the common, uh, you know, the new girl, if you like. Well, doesn't that tie back to the idea that there's only really three main plots: man against nature, man against man, and man against self. So at some point, it has to fall into that. Uh, but I do. You're right. I was going to make the same point as you were talking about how it was the same in the the choir book, the embassy book. I do think that it's interesting after that because the antagonist of that was so poorly developed. She just kind of took a dislike to them and kept attacking. Whereas Barbara here is throughout the book not well developed but by the end we get to see more into why she's being so antagonistic to them i thought that was an interesting change and obviously i don't know if that means this ghostwriter was just more competent about that or if there was actually some criticism coming out maybe internally at the publishing house that if you're going to do stuff like this set it up to mirror the main story better well that's fair i mean it's weird because this is what the third super edition now and the first one was obviously a massive hot mess of complete bullshit. And then the second one was a massive improvement on that, but still had issues. And then this third one, if you take what you've just said, it is a logical progression that it's improvements on that one. So maybe by the time we get to, you know, the, the eighth or ninth, we'll be reading this going, this is amazing, this rivals Shakespeare. Well, I don't know if I'll ever say that, but I might enjoy it more. Uh, but that's a good point. You're right. They are increasing in quality, at least the super editions, based on what happened before. Maybe not intentionally based on, but you can see here was an issue with one, it's addressed in two. Here's an issue with two, it's addressed in three. So that's interesting to me that you don't really see that in the books, which have this, besides the big continuity issue of the same year happening over and over, they're very self-contained. You don't really see a ton of changes in later books based on something that's happened in an earlier book, whereas you can see at least the quality increase between the super editions, which, because there's fewer of them, it makes sense that anything like that would happen there. But I'm also intrigued to see if 
I'd like to know which ghostwriters wrote which books in this and see if there's some sort of trend we can determine in that. But unfortunately, we only know some of the ghostwriters writing some of the books. True. It will be good to know the rest of the ghostwriters. That, that's a bit of a grail project that we could maybe come up with. Uh, taking your point on, on the improvements, not really filtering through book from book to book in the main series. Maybe that's because of the release schedule. Maybe it was too... You know, the, the, the feedback loop wasn't as well developed. So maybe improvements from book one might not be implemented until book ten or something like that rather than book to book. Whereas, how long was it, how, how long were the gaps between the super editions? Are we, are we talking months here or? I'm not sure. I'm going to assume that maybe they came out once every six months. So there was a bit of a gap between them, maybe mm-hmm. a summer and a Christmas release, um, you know, to coincide with the holidays when, you know, you want to give your kid a book and tell them to fuck off. That makes sense. I, that's a good point to you, because, yeah, with the generally, I don't know specifically about this because I've never looked into the publishing schedule. But generally, with types of series like this, you're on a one a month schedule for the regular books and then any of the special books would be six months or once a year so you're right there's much more time to incorporate feedback in the bigger issues whereas book one is published but they already have written through book 10 just because of the publishing schedule so i could see how taking changes and criticisms for book one wouldn't show up until much later and so throughout it's a slower increase of quality and Dove has said multiple times since we started this that the later books are better books, uh, that we should be more into the enjoyable part. So it does make sense that as the talent in the writing increases, but also just as the the talent in the outlining, like, okay, here's the story we're going to tell, they have now at this point more familiar with the characters in the world that could tell more interesting stories, whereas they very possibly could have had 10 or 15 or 20 books outlined before they ever started publishing them. So none of that would have been updated. Also, as far as I can tell from what I've read online, it doesn't necessarily, uh, just because we know Grant and Applegate did 19 in a row, that's not always the case. I mean, I can't guarantee this is true for twins, but it is true for High. They had, for a certain period, they had about three full-time High writers who were just getting whatever needed picking up next. So it was kind of like, a, you know, oh, I finished this, right, I'll grab the next one that's available. So, you know, you might have one person doing one, two, and then seven, and, and someone else is doing two, then four, then, you know. So while they would be full-time, they wouldn't be doing back-to-back stories. Again, I can't guarantee that that's true, but that I did read, I think I retweeted it, an article by one of the high writers. So, yeah, it's so again, we may see improvements and then we may see it downgrade and then up. And, you know, it's very hit and miss. So, yeah, but I didn't actually hate this book. I just um, it's just not as good as I hope it's going to be every time I pick it up. And one of the things I did like about this book, which is a bit of a strange thing, is that the fact that the actual denouement at the end was between two characters that weren't Wakefields. You had Grace and Barbara trapped in the cabin in the storm, talking, you know, she found the letters, Barbara's letters that she'd been um, getting from her folks that were basically a litany of horror about one how one parent hated the other, and those parallels that were drawn. And they had, you know, the, the, the story focused on those two 
and the Wakefields almost seem to be not in, inconsequential but side characters. They were the peripherals in this. So that was actually quite refreshing, I thought. Um, and yes, you still had Jess doing her bit to scupper Barbara, especially after the rescue. Um, and you still had Elizabeth doing her bit to, to, to save Grace and make sure that she wasn't discovered in the camp. But they felt like B points to the main Barbara Fields Grace Oliver story. So that was quite good, I thought. I quite enjoyed that. That's something to look forward to in the coming books where peripheral characters are the A plot and then in the background you've got Liz looking for a postage stamp or, you know, something. They do get pushed back and the A plot is all about, I don't know, Lila or Melissa McCormick or, and you actually get some point of, you, you get the point of view of them. So that's probably why it gets better towards the end. That is exciting. And I do like, even with Elizabeth and Jessica being tied into the end of this, it's still Grace who saves the day for Barbara because she comes in and rescues her from Jessica's really kind of horrific attack. That was some bullying right there, like hardcore bullying. She throws her stuff outside. It just completely lays into her about being a terrible person. It's horrific. Still very believable as to what Jessica do. You know, I, I, I could see that was a, yeah, a believable. Oh, action. absolutely. Very also, true to Jessica. Also, it really bugs me that nobody seems to realise that at this point Grace is a unicorn. I mean, we had her story in The Bully. That was her initiation into the unicorns. But she gets there and it's like there were a couple of unicorns in the bunk, Kimberly Haver and Ellen Reitman. I'm never going to say her surname right. But it's treated as if Grace is Elizabeth's friend. So... This ghostwriter might have been a bit more adept at writing, but she was a bit out of the loop on Sweet Valley. One of the things that really wound me up about this was the cabin. And the the cabin getting struck by lightning at the end. And then bursting into flames immediately. That was ridiculous, was it not? I mean, I'm not a big physics guy, but a, a cabin made of logs in a storm that was largely abandoned... I feel that we need to sort of like quote that wonderful Terry Pratchett uh, description of there's nothing like an open fire, is there? Where he lists all the things that won't burn and wet logs is uh, top of the list. Yeah. I think it's in good moments. But yeah, I agree with Raven. It's sort of like every car crash ends in a fireball. It's yeah, like, it's a very cinematic. But at least they have like you can almost see that. You can almost see that they're writing it to movie imagery. Yeah. It's just that idea that, okay, of course there's going to be this lightning strike and this dramatic fire, and you don't really care about the actual physics of it, just like movies hand wave the car explosions. I can. We wanted a fire, here we go. But you're right, I don't actually think it would have burned. Even if it had been drier, I don't know mm-hmm. that it would have burned. Especially in this terrible rain, uh, I think, yeah, it definitely would not have burned. I'm also going to give a shout out to the massively ineffectual staff at the place again just just can no adults get anything right i think your problem is that you keep asking adults to act as adults and darling it's sweet valley just just let it go i don't i don't i just want them to act i mean every single thing about this i mean they were like you know it was the woman in charge mrs what's her name and she was like oh i I didn't know that this this girl was here oh let's go and find her dither 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 and then Jessica basically swimming across to the, the, the camp or canoeing across to 
the boy camp to get the petition signed. Oh, I've just found about this petition. Oh, well, we might do it then. Yeah, just, just, just be an adult and be in control of stuff and stop letting them get away with murder and, ah! I agree, actually. Like, the Jessica thing rolling over to meet the boys when they're forbidden from being at the rock when the boys are there. The camps are split by this lake. There's a rock in the middle that each camp can row to and, and hang out on, but not at the same time for those who haven't read the book. This should have been punished. Not, oh, hey, maybe we will have this dance. Or when she managed to seek the petition over to the boys' camp, they should have been punished. And not, oh, hey, yeah, everybody signed this and send it over. It, it was just ridiculous. I mean, the idea that they weren't going to have any sort of inter-camp inter activities in the first place did not, not ring true to me at all. But the fact that they have these rules and then they're just allowed to drop constantly. Or they go looking for Grace, but when Barbara disappears at the same time, none of the adults seem to think they need to go searching for her right away either, which is a point that uh, Raven made, I think, in the recap itself. It, it is ridiculous. The adults are even worse than normal, which for Sweet Valley is really saying something. I feel so comfortable with my nano. <laughs> uh, uh, we'll get to that in sweet time. Don't worry. <laughs> so, yeah, overall, this book didn't really do it for me, I'm afraid. I didn't get the enjoyment from the camp stuff. The adults were as annoying as, as usual. I quite liked Barbara. I, I particularly liked when... She went, right, we're having a luau themed dance. Right, okay, I'm going to go dressed as a clown. Fuck you guys, you're all going dressed as clowns. And I <laughs> thought that was quite funny. I thought that was, you know, a good low-level piece of dickery. Maybe she was just ahead of her time and she's like, no, I'm not going to culturally appropriate the Hawaiians. Maybe so, maybe so. I'm going to culturally <laughs> appropriate Pennywise. <laughs> Don't think you can culturally appropriate Pennywise. Uh, I did like Barbara quite a bit. And I actually liked Grayson here yeah, to be somewhat. Fair. And she comes across sometimes as kind of whiny and mar she martyrs herself a little bit more than I would like, uh, yeah. taking Elizabeth's place in that. But I did think it was interesting how she's trying to work her way in and all the, the way the whole camp got together to keep her hidden, except for Barbara, obviously. It was pretty delightful. Uh, and I did like that even before this backstory on Barbara comes out, she's doing stuff that's actually very nice, but people are reading it as terrible because she was so grumpy at the start of camp. Like, she enters this art piece that Grace makes into the art competition because obviously Grace can't enter her own piece because she doesn't actually exist at camp. And when Barbara wins, she's going to give the prize to Grace. But everyone reads it, of course, as she stole her piece, and she's going to keep the prize for herself. And I thought that worked on both sides, like Barbara doing something decent as she's calming down and liking Grace because they're in similar positions and feeling better made a lot of sense. But also the way they reacted to it made a lot of sense, too, because, of course, they're going to leap to worst-case scenario because they think Barbara's terrible because she's been acting like a bag of dicks. Yeah, to be, I, I agree with that. that. That was a well done. Barbara couldn't win to begin with because um, the first time it happens, before she enters the horse, um, there's a bit where they're queuing up to see Old Yeller. Awesome. Let's come back to that. Um, and for some reason, uh, someone's doing a head count and it, they come up with one over and... People are like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? Grace is in there. And Barbara just kind of steps forward and went, oh, yeah, I forgot my, my, my jacket. So I've been through twice. And everyone goes, oh, God, what's she going to want from us for this? And it's like, 
maybe she was just embarrassed that she was kind of a bit grumpy on her first day. And this is her grand gesture to go, look, I'm all right. Be nice to me. But the Sweet Valley reaction is, fuck that bitch. Let's kill her while she sleeps. I can see that. And uh, at the time of reading that, I felt the same. However, immediately afterwards, she starts coming along Billy Big Bollocks and says, you know, uh, oh, yeah, you've got to be kind to me now because I know things. So she immediately jumps on the blackmail bandwagon, I think. So she sort of shot herself down in that. She could have well leveraged that into a much more acceptable, with a little bit more, you know, cunning and guard for myself. Said, well, I was doing it to save Grace, yeah. You know, I apologise for whatever bad behaviour that I've uh, been attributed to beforehand. Um, Can we all be friends? Yay. Yay, Camp Everfree, or whatever the fucking place is called. But she doesn't do that, so... Okay, sorry, I I thought they were slightly more apart, but yeah, okay, cool. But as I said, when I read her actual jumping into save Grace, I did think that as well. I did think what you thought and think, oh, yeah... This is her trying to make amends. And just to address your kind of small point there about for some reason they're taking a headcount. They're clearly taking a headcount to make sure that no one has fucked off and stuck over to the boys' camp. Jessica. Good good point. Cool. Are we done with this one then? I think we are, yeah. Okay then. Favourite and least favourite. Wing, go. Oh, uh, my favorite was definitely the camp book. My least favorite was probably Princess Elizabeth. I don't understand the royalty except, uh, I don't understand the royalty obsession in my own country, so I certainly don't understand it in this book. And I was primed to like the camp book because it's very nostalgic for me in a way that these recaps are supposed to tap in for people. So it definitely worked for me this time. I side with Wing entirely. Love the camp books because it brings back girl guides. Hate princess elizabeth because i hate the monarchy and elizabeth was the best thing in it and you know how i feel about elizabeth so was never going to win okay i think i'm going to shock everyone here and say i think my favorite of these was probably princess elizabeth and the reason that is because i actually really quite liked elizabeth for this book i thought she was nice Um, and as i said the only thing that i disliked massively in the book was when Arthur decided, oh, Jess can come along too, but I did reconcile that in my own way by saying, yeah, go on, lad, you're just being a, a total rock star and rocking up with the hot twins on your arm, so that's fine. Um, although I will say this month was a close-run thing. I found there were things that I liked about all of them and the things I disliked about all of them. Uh, the one I disliked the most, I'll probably go with The Big Camp Secret, but it was very, very close. Uh, I, I, I I didn't hate any of them. I didn't overly love any of them. They were all okay. Yeah, there I was nothing outstanding, was there? And there was nothing utterly heinous. Mm. So I believe that will be next month when Raven's got Elizabeth's new hero, Wing's got Jessica on stage, and I've got Jessica's bad idea, which is already up thanks to us getting really confused with our schedule and tech issues being evil. Okay, let's move on to Bleak Valley. (laughs) 
Jessica Wakefield doesn't exist. She's merely a construct in the mind of Elizabeth Wakefield, an abused only child trapped in the basement by unloving parents. Elizabeth Wakefield, whose imagination spawned the whole of Sweet Valley in an attempt to escape her lonely, imprisoned, apocalyptic clusterfuck life. The name for Elizabeth's altered reality? This desolate nightmare, the purple underbelly of a cracked psyche, the dark world of her mind and soul? Bleak Valley. Uh, so let's just go ahead and start with the, the babysitter book because the I already kind of hit it on earlier, obviously, as they pointed out. There is a guard shack at some park and or the school, undetermined. So, yeah, Sweet Valley as a whole, just a prison for all of these people. They live in a dome, perhaps, have this idyllic life. But in reality, there's some sort of experiment or TV show. And all the people that Jessica's murdering or Lila's murdering or they're both murdering buried around or people that are being punished and or it's a show about watching the murders. I'm really into this kind of Bleak Valley thing, even though I realize it doesn't tie super well into the idea that Elizabeth is not a twin and is buried in her basement living alone. So uh, I like this version of Bleak Valley, too. So we now have two alternate universes. We have number one, Bleak Valley, and number two, the reality show where everyone Possibly, is just yeah. watching this peculiar social experiment where everyone is stuck in the 80s and living in middle-class suburbia and being terrible. Cool. Nice, nice. How old is Bleak Valley Elizabeth? Hmm, good question. Is she the same age as Sweet Valley Elizabeth? I have always pictured her as the same age, but I'm curious as to where you're going with that question. Well, I would have said she thinks she's the same age, but... I can't guarantee that her parents have accurately kept track of her birthdays, and I'm fairly certain she's never had a birthday. I reckon every so often one of them just walks past and goes, you're 11, you know, and then about 14 months later, you're 12. That's fair. How about this? This is a bit, I'm going to say, I think it's a bit contrived and a little bit off the beaten track from what we usually discuss with these things. But how about Bleak Valley Elizabeth is having a first period and this book is a metaphor for that in the the wet t-shirt contest is quite icky and gross and something that she wants to get away from so she puts herself with kids as those two things being the product of what's happening to her body if you like so through the book because she's obviously she, she won't have had any sort of input from her family as to what's happening so she sees one thing as being very i don't want i don't want to get involved in that that's weird it's it's horrible and gross and I, I'm, I'm 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 not i'm not going to be a part of that but then she subconsciously puts herself in charge of kids which is the the product of that sort of sexual development and doesn't do well in that either Hmm. That's interesting. Uh, As I say, I like it. Not my, not my 
my uh, area of expertise, I must admit. So yeah. I have a more straightforward theory. Okay. Which well, before is... you before you do that, can I speak to Raven? Oh yeah, yeah, sure. I really like Raven's overall, though I do think that that assumes that she knows what's happening when she that gets her true. period. Which those kind of periods, she may not know. She may just randomly be bleeding and not understand why and not know that it leads to kids. So if she, in her brief reading of things, has come into contact with the idea of puberty and periods and procreation, then it makes perfect sense. If not, she's probably just this terrified kid who doesn't know what's happening to her. That's fair. That's fair. As I say, it was a little off the beaten path, that one, I thought. Yeah, and there actually is a period book later, which we know that... Michael Grant and Catherine Applegate very proudly gave Jessica her first period. My theory is a bit more straightforward in that she is one of the kids, probably the youngest one. We've already floated the idea that there's a bullying step sibling around who's sort of getting more attention. They do sort of play fight and I suspect it's not playing in bleak Elizabeth's world. And I think that the twin magic represents the idea that, like, her parents always know what she's doing. She can't outrun them. If she goes into the living room, even though her her mum's right behind her, her mum's already there and knows what she's going to do. And, you know, she's going to get punished for whatever it is she does. Quite sad. That is really creepy and delightful. I like it. Yeah, I like that. It also, I mean... It also, you can also tie in more more to that in the the whole thing about the there's a room that you can't go into and here's the key. That could be a case of you know you're not allowed out of this this the cupboard or wherever you live. You know the entire house is out of bounds to you. And it also explains the parents' almost laissez-faire attitude to giving their kids to somebody else to look after because she's got no strong parental role models who will be able to you know who would who would stand up for her and say well no we're going to look after our kid for, to her the parents don't care so having the parents in in this story not caring is very believable that's true it definitely makes all these times we're like well why would someone leave someone alone uh it makes sense because she's left alone all the time first of all but second of all her parents wouldn't care if they were going to hire a babysitter rather than leaving her alone they wouldn't care if they ever met that babysitter before or if it was a good person or an abuser or whatever so yeah i think that's a really good point the one thing that I, I, I am presuming that I don't think she'll ever be babysat because she would not... I don't think the parents would want anybody outside of the, the Bleak Valley household to know that they have this sibling locked in a cupboard. Oh, I agree. It's not as if they're going to be invited to dinner parties anyway because they're just all high on heroin in the corner, you know. Who knows the, the, the social lives of uh, these addicted car wrecks. Yeah, they just go out to get more meth. Nice. And occasionally steal cars. <laughs> okay, yeah, I like that. That's good. That's a good a good theory. What about uh, the royalty book? To be honest, I got nothing. I've got nothing other than, as Wing said, it's your standard wish fulfillment, Disney, he's a secret prince, he loves me. I can run away. So I've, I've got nothing deep or, or special for that. Well, so. actually, I think I could build on that with something 
deep because it's interesting because it does sort of start to read, especially with the title, as that sort of wish fulfillment, either I'm secretly a princess or he's going to save me or whatever. But Elizabeth, Bleak Valley Elizabeth in Sweet Valley Elizabeth doesn't even set it up as, oh, he's going to save me. It's just that, oh, he likes me and, and we're friends. Like She can't even take herself to the point where a secret prince would save her. All she gets out of this is friendship. Mm. So she can't even imagine a prince is going to be able to rescue her, just give her this moment of happiness. Yeah, That's true. depressing. Yeah. Like her deepest, darkest, you know, most precious wish is not to be saved. It's just for someone to go, you know what? You're not so bad. Yeah. And also her deepest, uh, her deepest, darkest wish is for this person to be able to save her. And he's still a bit of a dick because she, as we said earlier, she goes to great lengths to explain why things have happened the way they have. And he still doesn't pick up on stuff. He's still like, no, you betrayed me. Um, and that's all part of it, which is also quite sad. Well, that probably speaks to a relationship with her parents. Like, you know, if step-sibling drops a plate and her parents go, bad Elizabeth. And she's like, yeah, but it wasn't me. It was step-sibling. Bad Elizabeth. All your fault. I think that's a fair point, too. Yeah, this this version is just heartbreaking with this book. Oh, I love it, but heartbreaking. Okay. Big camp secret. I mean, I guess you could go for the surface level. Grace runs away. Sweet Valley Elizabeth runs away. But I actually struggle with this one because it's such a... I don't, maybe because I can't separate it from the actual story of summer camp. I have a hard time figuring out... We could go massively meta... It's a big camp secret. Camp is, you know, for generally associated with gay people. And Elizabeth is in a closet. It's massively meta, but it's all I've got. I, nice. I'm sorry. My brain exploded when I came up with Brat Attack. Ah. Well, we could have this that um, instead of Bleak Elizabeth seeing, uh, identifying with Sweet Valley Elizabeth or Jess, this time she's actually both Grace and Barbara. In that she's got, though both of those characters have got dysfunctional home lives, and both of them are dealing with them in different ways, but have the same fallout from them. Grace is is trying to embrace her friends, whereas Barbara is trying to push them away. Um, even though that maybe that is something that she's trying to do with the step sibling. At, what, at some part, she's like, "No, I want to be your friend, so we can, we can, you know, deal with the, the family, the, the parental units above us together." And the other part of her is like Barbara, going, "No, no, no, get away from me! You're being a dick. I want nothing to do with you. I'm going to try and deal with this by myself." And that's why the reconciliation at the end is between Grace and Barbara, but in bleak valley elizabeth it's her coming to trying to come to terms with those two distinct thoughts that she has when she's presented with the family life that she has i can see that i like that i also like the idea that it is barbara and grace these two different sides of elizabeth trying to deal with this who save each other though she's really circled herself on to elizabeth and jessica in the sweet valley universe Mm. 
these outside characters are actually what drive the plot and are the important point. And it kind of makes me have hopes that Leak Valley Elizabeth will have found a way for herself to survive. I'm sure that will change next time we talk about Leak Valley and, and she'll still be broken and of course. not safe. But I like this idea that it could happen. Actually, didn't we, when we were talking about the bully, didn't we decide that that did represent, so Grace was reaching out to Dennis, who was a bully, yeah. that that was Bleak Elizabeth reaching out to her step-sibling. So yeah. obviously yeah. So it's an ongoing issue. Yeah. yeah. So she does pull out Grace as well when she's feeling less confident than a Wakefield. Look how uh, much better continuity we have than the actual books themselves. <laughs> Yeah, we're better at this when we're making it up on the fly. This is true. Although I reckon that the fact that there's 11 Christmases a year is probably because nobody tells poor Bleak Valley Elizabeth what day it is. <laughs> so, yeah. You know what? That's actually well a Christmas. really good point. <laughs> I like that. I like that theory. Marvellous. Yeah, three good fit theories there, I think. I think, yeah, we tied those in quite nicely. Very... Which is good, because I didn't do any prep for this. Did anybody else? No. I never no. prep for Bleak Valley. It's no, always just whatever has come up when we talk. Yeah. I prep extensively for my summary and the book discussion, but Bleak Valley is always, <laughs> let's see where it goes. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so, yeah, if anyone out there has had done some more prep for Bleak Valley and has got some better ideas than we have, please share them in the comments, because we were, we will gladly incorporate anything that you've got to say into the uh, the Bleak Valley narrative, without a shadow of a doubt. So this month, uh, since we're recording in November, even though we're talking about October's books, Dove has a special surprise for everyone. If you visited the SweetValley.online website recently, you know what it is. But Dove, why don't you tell them about what you're writing for NaNoWriMo this year? I am doing a Hunger Games crossover with Sweet Valley Twins. It is incredibly silly. I have broken the fourth wall more times than I can count. I am breaking literally every rule that Wing has instilled on in me for good writing. And I'm pretty much having the time of my life. It's awesome. It's so much fun. I could totally Jamie Suzanne. Yeah, it's really, really good fun. You've you got to go out there and read it. Um, I think you're putting up one or two chapters a day. Is that correct? I am, yes. Every day at 9am, a chapter goes up. I will tweet if if I don't get it done in time. My Twitter is at SweetValley underscore. But in theory, everything should go up at 9am, English time, uh, Greenwich GMT, whatever that stands for. What's extra fun about this is not just that it is a, a fun story, a fusion of Sweet Valley Twins and Hunger Games, but also it's interactive in some ways. You can go sponsor a tribute. You could ask questions of them. You could send them specific gifts or random gifts. All you have to do is go comment on the post that she's putting up, and Dove will include them in the story in some way or another. So, yeah, if you've ever wanted to randomly sponsor a kid who's trying to kill other kids, this is your chance. Yeah, uh, Rosie has already sent two sponsorship gifts, and I have to clarify, uh, sponsorship costs absolutely nothing. All you've got to do is tweet me or leave a comment either on the site or Facebook, because it auto-publishes to Facebook. So, yeah, just as long as I'm aware of it, I'll incorporate it into the story. 
I have reserved the right to slightly change it if my plot requires it, but uh, I will do my best to adhere to anything that is requested. So, yeah, you guys should definitely go enjoy this throughout November, uh, which is a great time of year to have this sort of thing, at least in the northern part of the world. It's starting to get very gray and bleak and kind of dreary in a lot of places. So enjoy this fun thing. And apparently we all need to keep an eye out for a Christmas surprise, which I'm excited. I know none of the details about that one. And I look forward to what's going to happen there. Oh, I also want to clarify that Raven and Wing are also allowed to uh, sponsor anything they want because they have no say in how the story goes. So from that point of view, they are readers. So if you think they're getting special treatment, they're not. Yeah, we're enjoying it just as much as everybody else will hopefully be enjoying it when they read it. So. Oh, yeah, I'm excited about it. Fantastic. Okay, if that's all you have to say about your Hunger Games Sweet Valley Fusion. Uh, next month, we recap number 31, Jessica's Bad Idea, number 32, Jessica on Stage, and number 33, Elizabeth's New Hero. It is a very Jessica-heavy month. I've kind of said that third book is about Elizabeth and not Jessica. Well, Elizabeth's New Hero actually turns out to be Jessica, so that's fine. <laughs> Fitting, always. <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks very much for listening, guys, and we'll speak to you soon. All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye, guys. Thank you for listening to this month's episode of Sweet Valley Online. You can find all our recaps and previous podcast episodes on our website at sweetvalley.online. Come talk to us on Facebook at facebook.com slash sweetvalleyonline and on Tumblr at sweetvalleyonline.tumblr.com. Thanks again to Stuart Taylor of Legacy Breakfast for our music. We'd love it if you subscribe, rate, and review us at your favorite podcast provider. Thanks again for listening.